Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Bosch, host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Andratisha Fritz-Gerald about her new book, Anti-Racism and Universal Design for Learning, Building Expressways to Success. Andratisha, Tisha, welcome to the show. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It's my pleasure, really. Thank you for being here. Uh, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. I am from Cleveland, Ohio. I grew up in inner city Cleveland. Um, I've been in education for about 20 years. And I remember at the beginning of my journey as a teacher, I chose to work in an urban area. Um, It's important to me to serve, to learn as much about the community as possible before Um, showing what I have to give. So I spent about 20 years in education, working as a teacher, a curriculum specialist, a director of curriculum, and now I'm serving as human resource director. So I get to find those teachers who have the passion to serve um, in urban schools. And also I've been spending a lot of time consulting and helping schools and districts reach Black and Brown students and also think about systems and approaches to make sure that all students have a voice and a place in our schools. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that background and for also rooting in the place uh, that you're from. Um, So tell us how you came to write uh, this book, Anti-Racism and Universal Design for Learning, Building Expressways for Success. Um, I started in 2017 writing this book about universal design for learning. And I really wanted to write a book about how to make it accessible in schools or places that had not yet thought about using the framework. And right after George Floyd was murdered, um, I remember spending the weekend weeping, literally weeping. And I had a conversation with a friend who knew the book, who had been kind of walking with me through the creation process. And she said, this this is a book about anti-racism. This is a book about universal design for learning and anti-racism. And as I looked through the themes and I looked through um, what was most important for me to communicate, it really was. And so the book took a little bit of a twist and it became um, just a sounding board for what's most important to my heart, that every student is included in a way that is honoring and welcoming to them and that they don't have to compartmentalize who they are to be successful in the educational environment. And so anti-racism and universal design for learning was born that way and merging two roads together to build an expressway to success. That's um, a really uh, incredible story in part because um, I like how it's rooted in friendship in the wake of disaster and tragedy. Thank you for sharing that. 
So could you expand a bit on, for, for listeners who maybe don't know, um, your definitions of universal design for learning and uh, anti-racism? Absolutely. So universal design for learning is a framework and it comes out of CAST, um, which is the Center for Applied Science and Technology. And basically it takes 25 years of brain research on how humans learn best and breaks it down into three principles. The multiple means of representation, which really is just making sure that learners have options for how they take information in. Many times in classrooms, there's just one way. And this framework really encourages teachers to use multiple ways to reach children that way. Um, Multiple means of action and expression, which means giving learners the option on how they show what they know. And then multiple means of engagement, which really gives options for how to navigate through the content. And so that's universal design for learning. It's the best in brain research for learning for human beings. And it is a framework that I find um, just really matches with the methods that I know that are successful for reaching children. And then anti-racism is a series of actions and choices and decisions that intentionally and purposefully tear down racism. And so when we merge those two together, we take the very best of what we know about teaching and learning, and we merge that as an intentional and impactful method to reach black and brown children then we have an expressway to success, a pathway, if you will, um, that allows every learner to find what works best for them, to learn how they learn, to be an expert on themselves, and to be welcome while they're learning more about themselves. Thank you. Um, I got to just say, you know, towards the end of the book, you have um, uh, some guidance that includes a question um, that says, is this professional conversation assisting me with the goal of ensuring that black and brown students are learning? And I just feel like it's a good time to mention that that's, you know, why I wanted to have this conversation with you. Um, And that's, uh, so that's, you know, our goal here today and the goal of um, this book. And people may not realize but um, your, bur- your book is really setting the tone for these two schools of action, as you put it, to finally come together, um, right? I wonder if you could say a bit more about, um, you know, bringing un- universal design for learning and anti-racism explicitly into union. It's not something that, um, you know, has explicitly been done before. So it's important for all teachers, all educators, all of us to really um, mitigate our circle of influence. Mm -hmm. Each of us has a way that we can use our circle of influence to make a difference. Um, Many times in schools, we consider a class as a whole. And very rarely does that consideration include the unique differences that set students apart or that may cause them to struggle. And when we don't design with every student in mind, when we don't design with what barriers could be in place in mind, then that means that we're passive to the barrier. When I look at the data, the data is startling for the differences between Black and Brown students and their white counterparts. For instance, Black students 
are suspended at a rate that's three times higher than their white counterpart. And so when we look at that, when we say that we can predict that one out of three times, if a student is black and in the classroom, they're going to be suspended and we can predict that based on the color of their skin, then there is a problem with our design. There's a problem with what we think towards a group of people simply because of the color of their skin. And so the book really asks people to reconsider their own privilege and their, their own power, their own practices, and really truly honor the students who are in front of them and serve them in a different way. And so bringing together anti-racism with universal design for learning, then universal design for learning is about making sure that every student has these options and has what they need so that they feel safe so that they're learning. Anti-racism protects that intention for Black and brown students purposefully. Amazing. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I guess to get more into the specifics of the book, um, and as you mentioned in your intro, you're based in Ohio. Um, and I was curious about uh, whether or not um, that was connected to the foreword of your book being written by Samaria Rice, Tamir Rice's mother. Um, is there any, was there any connection? How, how did that, I mean, her, her foreword is so powerful. Um, how did that come about? So Samaria Rice lives here in Cleveland. And when Tamir Rice was killed, um, it, was, it sent shockwaves throughout our community. To see someone so young lose his life, uh, it just, we mourned with her. We weeped with her. And at that time when it happened, I did not know her. Um, and her cause, when she took the tragedy that she'd experienced and turned it into a triumph, and she decided to fight not just for justice for Tamir, but she began to show up at rallies for other people who had lost their lives. She began to champion causes in education. She even is opening a cultural arts center in Tamir Rice's name so that children in the inner city will have an, an outlet to express themselves. So I read an article that she was interviewed in in Essence magazine where she shared that um, Tamir loved the arts and she's a champion for arts and education. And so from that uh, article, when I read that, I thought that she would love to hear more about universal design for learning. And so I explained to her what it was and invited her to lend her voice to the project and talking with her and hearing um, just her passion for good teaching and making sure that every one of her children had exactly what they needed and how she would advocate for them and how she taught them to advocate for themselves. I knew that the partnership was perfect and she agreed to write the forward and has such powerful words to share about the power of transformative education when we make a choice to be anti-racist and truly universally designed. Definitely. It was incredibly powerful. And she sets up this idea of uh, systems, right? And systems level change, racism as a system within our education systems that you then carry forward um, when you talk about uh, why we as educators um, need to pick up these two kind of sets of uh you know, um, tools to um, bring to bear in our work uh, in education urgently today. 
There was an image that really struck me that she shared um, in the foreword about um, just children being arrested, being placed in handcuffs, having uh, their hair being criticized simply for their culture. Um, so she sets up a, a a beautiful picture of the horrendousness of the dichotomous experience of Black and Brown children in America and what they endure in schools. But also there's hope there that that hope is um, what I tried to catch a hold to for the rest of the book to really say that, listen, if we make different choices, if we educate ourselves on our biases, if we know enough about what helps students to succeed, then we will do that. And particularly for Black students and for Brown students, for Indigenous students, for those who are marginalized on the outer skirts of that wheel of privilege and power, that we will bring them into the place of decision-making and a place of authority because they deserve to be there. Yes. And, you know, I just, I guess I got to mention, like, the intersection in all this, too, with the special education system, I think is really important to name. And she does as well, right? She talks about over-identification and and you do as well. And um, I think that the, you know, the role of our ideas about ability, you talk later in the book, right, about, like, questioning, like, what is right and how what has been entrenched as you know, quote unquote, right, is largely reflective of dominant white culture. And I think that, um, you know, we also need to always be making links to ideas about ability that are, you know, coming from that same um, source that marginalizes so many disproportionately Black and on a national level, Indigenous students. Absolutely. When you think about anti-racism, you also have to think about ableism and any other areas of oppression. And I think that universal design for learning is a great framework to bring that into the conversation. And that's why it's a framework that I'm really passionate about. It does not leave anyone out or anyone behind. We just have to be intentional about how we implement and watch for the change. Exactly. So well said. Thank you for that. Um, and I guess it's a kind of it's a great segue into um, I wanted to ask you about uh, chapter one, you know, is about um, power, right? Systems of power and uh, this framework that you create codes of honor. Um, and I wanted to really call out, you know, you honor the reader explicitly in your writing and in this chapter in particular, you honor um anti-racist teachers who pick up UDL as a, as a tool in their toolbox. Um, and of course, honor black and brown students really powerfully in this chapter. You draw on Lisa Delpit, a foundational um, black educator and her codes of power from 1988 to, to kind of create this, um, this framework of the codes of honor And you say that codes of honor will take over the codes of power when, quote, schools and learning communities become places where all students can exercise their power and eliminate the learned powerlessness. How did you come to this particular word honor? And can you talk a little bit more about its relationship to power and the codes of honor? When teaching in the classroom, you learn very quickly that You can operate from a place of power, but it won't get you very far. 
you can come up with all the rules in the world and it'll take maybe about 15 minutes for a six-year-old to show you who's really in control, right? And so- And and everybody has learned it now, (laughs) right? While they're trying to do the role of a teacher at home, yes. Oh my goodness, yes. You learn very quickly that you can operate from a position of power. However, what helps students to come alive, what helps learners to find their passion zone and let you in on what works for them, and tell you what they need from you, that takes honor. And I learned quickly that when we respect learners, when we speak to them with respect, when we honor what they're saying with our listening ears, when we take the time to learn them and then find the spaces where we can come together that they want me to teach them, where they're asking for my instruction, then you can move forward. And I found that for a teacher to be effective, there has to be relationship and not relationship in the surface aspect of, I know your name or I know what television show you like. Those things are important, but relationship in that we understand the purpose for us coming together, both individually and as a learning community. When we have this shared sense of purpose, then we can move forward. And that goes beyond respect. That means that there is an honor that we share, that I see value in investing in you and recruiting your interest and creating options that you choose from that then send value back to me that says that I've created something of value to you because you are of value to me. That Mm. give and take, that code of honor, that I am the teacher and I have this perceived power, but I will lay it down in order to invite you into a place of decision-making where you ultimately already are. You get to make decisions about you. My learning environment then invites you into that power position by laying down my power and allowing you to pick up your own. And this shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be unique to schools. It should be the norm for schools. But for so long, schools and especially urban schools that um, educate most of our black and brown students in America, they've been based on this compliance model. So there's regulations and then we have to have these rules. And if we don't have all of these structures in place to make all of the decisions for the learner, then who knows what will happen? But my question is, what will happen when We create environments where students feel they have the power and not just feel it, but they can exercise the power, where they can take educational risks, where they can state, this is what I want to learn more about. When they can say, hey, this is the the area that I want to go into. How can this connect to what I ultimately want to do in life? When our classrooms become zones of power for the learner in an honoring way, then we will have learners who know what they need, who will have the muscle and the practice to advocate for themselves. They'll have the keys to the vehicle of their own learning and then the strategies to make sure that any environment they're in, they can personalize it for themselves. That's when the codes of power are diminished and the codes of honor overtake those systems that were in place to get the results that they've always gotten. Right. That's when anti-racism becomes active and not passive. 
is when we give empower we give power by empowerment. And that doesn't just depend on what we know. It really depends on what we do. And so um, one of the things that, like I said, in the classroom that I learned is that when the learners were involved in the structure of the classroom, when we co-created rituals and routines together, when we came up with incentives that we as a learning community, which meant that if I taught six periods a day, then there were six different structures that we operated by. That's a small price to pay for me to allow minds to be open and students to learn and to show what they know in a way that showcases their brilliance and has value to them. So that's really what um, the codes of power and the codes of honor um, mean to me, and that's how they come alive. Thank you so much. You know, people talk about um, schools being sites of reproduction of society's larger power structures. But in what you just described, you know, it's so clear that while that, I think, personally is definitely true to an extent, we can never, you know, discount the agency and the power that we have um, as educators when we're working in classrooms to try and um, protect our students from just, you know, thoughtless reproduction of those ingrained systems of oppression and marginalization. Um, I just really appreciate um, everything that you're elucidating about that kind of complex reality. I mean, having been a teacher, I always go back to the classroom too, you know, even now as a scholar. And I just think it's so real, you know, that, that, that struggle of like, I'm within a system, but I also have the power to carve out spaces that are safe from some of that system's reach. Um, in the second chapter, you kind of get into this more, right? With the, um, it's entitled The Urban Teacher's Reality. Please just keep teaching. Here you recognize the challenges coming for the hearts and minds of urban teachers from all directions. And of course, you know, very related to that, the barriers that black and brown and low income and queer and functionally diverse students in cities deal with every day as well. You have an incredible sentence in this chapter. You say, I have learned that education is the most rewarding recycling of heartbreak. Could you do me a favor and talk more about that? I was so moved by that. So when you are in education, uh, there are things that will break your heart. But when they break your heart, you cannot stay in that place of heartbreak. You have to take it and allow it to fuel what you do next, how active you are, what changes you make, what systems you push, which questions you ask. And then after you ask the questions, after you push the needle, things may change, but then there's something else that will break your heart. And it's okay. It's okay to admit that these things hurt. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be downtrodden for a moment. But we have to allow, we have to recycle the heartbreak we feel and upcycle it into something that will make a difference for the next. We can't just stand by and allow another generation to experience what the last generation has. And in a school, a generation is from one school year to the next or one semester to the next. 
And we have to make a difference. We have to be actively taking the things that break our heart and recycling those to upcycle to something different. So on that note, um, you know, educators are always asking, you know, when you go to professional development or um, some kind of workshop, you're looking for tools that you can use the next day or in the classroom, like, you know, ASAP, right? And in the next chapter, you, 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 they're, they're tucked in, um, but there are these two kind of ready to use activities or, pro- or protocols that really caught my eye. And I, I'm going to summarize them for the audience, but I would love for you to explain when I'm done how these, uh, you know, seemingly simple practices really lay a foundation for anti-racist education that can can be done tomorrow, if not today, in, in the classroom. So those two um, tools, the first one is um, the four simple steps for listening safely. So just to summarize very briefly uh, for listeners and Um, I'm kind of skipping over the safety checks on the UDL Expressway, the full scope of the metaphor that you build throughout this book that that I'll get into later also. But just to summarize the four tools of of the four simple steps for listening safety. The first is direct your thoughts towards the speaker. The second is, you know, traffic light kind of metaphor. Stop doing anything besides interact with the speaker. Use caution when making distracting noises. Go with the speaker by responding appropriately and they go on, right? And then you also provide the circle maker activity where the teacher just gives the simple direction to students of putting desks that are probably in rows into a circle and timing the students as they go about that without help to increasingly get better at that, you know, sense of achieving a goal, right? Can you talk about how these kinds of simple or apparently simple activities really pave the way or open the door for far-reaching anti-racist implications in the classroom? Absolutely. So with anti-racist universal design for learning, one essential component is allowing the students to choose to shoot their voice. And how can we invite voice to the table when we don't have a protocol for listening? And so the four simple steps for listening safely kind of uh, mirror some safety tips. So let's say, for instance, if you're going to ride your bike, you would put on a helmet, you would obey the traffic lights, you would look out for other riders or drivers, and then you would use your signals if you're going left or right. If you're going to drive a car, you would make sure you put on your safety belt. Well, in a learning environment, whether online or in person, we need to have similar protocols to make sure that when the person takes the risk of sharing their voice, that we know how to receive it. And so this literally sets some ground rules as a community on how we give our attention to the speaker. And then we take the gravity that they are sharing something that Um, Otherwise, we would not know if they did not share it with us. And then if we're doing something that could be distracting to them, we just are mindful of one another. Listening as a skill teaches a community how to come together. And so it's important that in anti-racist work that we learn to listen so quickly we dismiss viewpoints that don't agree from ours, uh, don't agree with ours or experiences that don't mirror ours. 
And so with the listening protocol, it paves the way for voices that are normally drowned out to be heard. The circle maker activity gives the group a sense of community cohesiveness. And it also lets them have the authority in how they make the difference. So you're putting the desk in a circle. It's really not a complex task, but the first time through, no matter what, and I've done it with class after class after class, we would sometimes be over 10 minutes putting 25 desks in a circle with the talking and the moving around. I know you drop the books from underneath, but at the end of the activity, they come up with how will we do this quickly each time? The teacher doesn't have to facilitate. And it also sends a message to the learners that as their brain scans for whether they have autonomy in this space or not, or if their voice matters or not, they learn that their voice has gravity, that their leadership skills are welcome, that their solutions and problem-solving methods are welcome, and they're not teacher-driven. In an anti-racist learning environment, there has to be space for Black and brown children to lead, to try, to take risks, to become a part of the community. And in order for that to happen, the community has to be cohesive. And so whether there's only one Black child or if the whole class is Black, it does not matter. The community knows how to receive one another, respecting the uniqueness and the gifts that each child brings, that each learner brings, and then working together as a community to create something that could never be created again without this group of people coming together. I love that. Um, yes, I, I. it just brings back memories of, of also, you know, I remember doing something similar in one of my uh, very first classrooms, and we had a student who used a walker. And it's like, you know, the beauty of like the students figuring out also without your constant direction, how to genuinely include everybody's different skills comes through in that kind of an activity, right? It sure does. And I I spent some time at Chime. Uh, It's a school in close to LA, I believe. And what I learned there is that when children come together as a community, the thing about Chime is that it's a national site of excellence for inclusion. And on purpose, the school is 50% students with disabilities and 50% students that would be um, general ed, but they're in an inclusive setting. And the the way that the children come together, they learn how to play together. So like you said, there are students with walkers. There are some who have crutches. There are some with significant disabilities. Um, but the children find a way to interact. They find ways to be community. And when we learn how to be community, it doesn't matter the struggle. Actually, what's normalized is support. Everyone needs support with something. And so in our community, when we learn where people need support, then we we come together to create that. And that, I will say, in, in my experience with teaching, those are the most magical classrooms. They accomplish so much more than the segmented, one note, one kind of class. It's it's just once you experience the the beauty of universal design and action, um, you just can't go back. Right. It's like the you, you know I think you just alluded to it. The the it's almost a cliche if you're used to talking about UDL, the one sized fits all model of education, right? 
Um, and so kind of on that note, uh, you know, UDL has been entering, however gradually, but it's been entering the mainstream education discourse, not to mention, you know, um, in, starting in the 2000s, uh, legal policies in this country. But UDL has kind of been entering the mainstream in the education world since the 1990s, right? One thing that really strikes me in your book is how your voice and writing, in particular your use of this um, UDL as an expressway metaphor, make it so fresh. And really, like, you know, for those who don't know, the UDL framework is composed of these you know, I think you mentioned in the beginning of our talk, the principles, these three main principles, and also then guidelines within those and checkpoints within those. So there's a lot to say and a lot has been said. <laughs> but in chapter four, you know, you really are are starting to, and, and it goes throughout the book, but just develop this metaphor where you're talking about, you know, on-ramps to learning so that all students, but especially black and brown and other traditionally marginalized ones can, quote, experience driving towards their own definition of success. This metaphor was so vivid and like fully fleshed out by the end of the book. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you chose this metaphor, why you chose it, and and how it animated your thinking about UDL in new anti-racist ways. So the reason why I chose driving as a metaphor. I'm uh, a person that became a driver a little later than others. So um, I started to drive, I think I was either 19 or 20 when I got my license. And there is a sense of independence that it just, it can't be described to be able to drive yourself to the destination you choose. Um, When I love to drive and there are times when I'm driving to and from work and it's a pretty straight shot for me. um, So I could like literally go down one street for 10 minutes and get to work. But there are times where I just make the decision to take a different route. And I still arrive at my destination. I just find a route that makes me happy for that day. And so I think about universal design for learning and particularly anti-racist universal design for learning. It empowers learners to have the keys and drive to the destination of their choice. Once they know how they learn, once they have the supports that work for them, Once they can identify their strengths and not just their strengths as far as content, but their strengths as a learner in context. So they'll know what they need in mathematics. They'll know what they need in language arts. And then they'll know ultimately where it is they're trying to go. Every child is not looking to go to college. That may not be a desire in their heart, um, but perhaps they want to become an entrepreneur or perhaps they want to. you know, build websites or code, if that is their goal, how much stronger is it for us to build systems of support that push them in that direction, that make the connections explicit, but also give them the keys to drive there to the destination in the way that they want to. They set the goals. They know what supports they need. And if you know what supports you need, then ultimately you can advocate for those supports in every learning environment that you're in. And so if I know that I need um, speech to text in order to write a paper, then I don't have to wait for a teacher to give me speech to text. I know what I need. And when I go home or when I'm in study hall or when I'm 
over to the side working on my ideas. I may be whispering into a microphone or um, taking a step out into the hallway to just get my ideas down because I know what works for me. And so when I drive, I know exactly the temperature that I like. I know if I want the seat forward or back. I know what tunes I need on the radio, depending on how far I have to go. And to me, it was a perfect metaphor to explain what it looks like to be a learner who is independent. Zaretta Hammond has a whole text in her culturally responsive teaching um, book about being an independent learner. An expert learner is what it's called in UDL. And once you become an expert on what you need and what supports actually work for you, then every learning environment gives you the opportunity to be successful because you create the success. You drive to the destination of your choice. You have the keys. You control the comforts. You make sure you have the supports that you need in order to make it to the destination. And that is success. Beautifully said. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, I guess to start kind of winding down, um, in the second to last chapter, you talk about the, as I said, right, you so fully developed this metaphor that you even get into the personal protective equipment necessary for those of us whose intention is to build anti-racist classrooms. For example, you know, you mentioned the importance of finding your tribe, like you're teaching people, right? The importance of um, finding communities where we feel like novices so that we can keep developing, keep learning as educators, and also about being selective about whose feedback and criticism we're going to take to heart. Or as you say, you know, whether we're going to let someone, quote, diminish our personal fire to implement these changes. Of course, PPE, as you also point out, has a new meaning in the era of COVID, especially from an anti-racist lens, right? Conscious of all the unnecessary and disproportionate deaths that have happened amongst working uh, Black and Latino families in particular during this pandemic. So with everything that has led up to and happened since you published this book, I mean, people just keep saying over and over, right, the unprecedented historical times that we're living through. How have you found yourself drawing on any of this advice? It's so important to realize that Instant transformation is not the goal of anti-racist UDL. However, we need to see changes. We need to see differences. And so it's so important for us to craft a journey that every Black and Brown member of our learning communities can fully engage and learn in. That's the goal. And so the metaphor of the expressway of success really translates back to the fact that this is a journey. And in my own advocacy, when I am in meetings where there are decisions being made for Black children or Black families, for Brown children and Brown families, when comments are being made, it is my duty to stand up, to push for systems that invite the voice of the learners to the table. And if that means that um, people are uncomfortable, it's a small price to pay for changing the learning environment. Um, status quo cannot be where we stay. There are so many lives being lost because the pandemic has shined a light on the inequities that have existed for decades. And um, now is the time. 
this is the time in history where the world is ready for change. There are all kinds of events unfolding right before our eyes, taking place and taking shape right here in America that are unconscionable and difficult to even believe that they will happen in our country, but they are. And so in education, we launch a rebellion, a protest to the educational status quo by not just believing in an empowering educational journey for Black and brown learners, but living it, sharing it, cultivating it, and rebuking everyone who is not striving for it. It's an uncomfortable place to be, but this is the laying down our power. Power seeks comfort, but honor seeks to serve those who we are working for. And so I feel like it is my personal responsibility to empower Black and brown children to advocate fiercely for them and not just for them, but with them so that they can advocate for themselves in spaces that will make a difference for their outcomes. Well, Tisha, we have taken up a lot of your time today. I'm so grateful for this conversation with you. Um, As a final question, uh, just let me ask, I would love to hear, what are you working on these days? So um, I have a an organization that I started back in 2018 called Building Blocks of Brilliance. And so I'm doing a lot of advocacy work and consulting through Building Blocks of Brilliance and working with teachers and schools to create these environments that we not just dream of, but we work for. Also just um, spending time writing and really enjoying the journey with my two young ones. I have a 13-year-old son and a 14-year-old daughter and my husband, Tony. So as a family, we've decided that we will personalize this protest, that we'll fight uh, together, and that we will help to empower others to make a difference for Black and brown learners and actually for any oppressed group, oppressed people. We'll fight oppression wherever it shows up. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the term power couple, but you all sound like a power family. So (laughs) I'm very excited for what the future holds for you, Tony, and your two kids. Um, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today and on my first episode. I have really, really enjoyed this. Um, Take care, and I hope to be in touch and talk soon. Thank you so much, Christina. I've enjoyed my time.